0: Okay, we're going to continue in our series on the church. The title of this message is The Gathered Ones. We are excited to share a meal together a little later here, so we'll try to get us out of here around noon. Each week I've tried to do a little bit of review of some of the key ideas, some of the most important things we've covered so far, and last week was a little bit of a lengthy review. So this week I just typed one large paragraph to be more concise and I'm just going to read that. You can follow along on the screen if you'd like. And um, a lot of scripture references in there that I won't mention, but this is just to give you a bit of an analysis of where we've come from so far in case you've missed a week or so. The church is not a physical building, but a spiritual one, comprised of the people of God, those built up on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. The church was loved and chosen by God before the world was even formed. And now, in time and space, they are those who have responded to his call into everlasting covenant with himself. The church proves herself in part by desiring and working toward the salvation of others, even as she herself was given so great a salvation. Despite going into the world to be the light and win the lost, the church will always be in spiritual conflict with the spirit of the world. And she will live as a spiritual stranger or exile within the prevailing culture. While the church is to love those she seeks to win through the gospel, she also must engage in perpetual spiritual warfare with the spiritual powers of evil in the world. However, this war is waged not only against outside spiritual forces of evil, but also against an enemy lurking within, even the redeemed themselves, the flesh. So, that's kind of what we've covered so far. And perhaps you're thinking I should try to be more concise every week. I don't know, but maybe that was not as concise as you hoped it would be. We'll, we'll plow ahead now. Today, I want to continue looking into the Bible's description of the nature of the church itself. That uh, this is not a time for us to have an identity crisis about who we are. And only after knowing. What our being is, what our nature is, can we really do what God is calling us to do as His people? A few weeks down the road, we will begin to look more directly into what the church does, um, but we first need to know clearly who we are. So our first and primary task is to find our identity as the people of God. The first main idea I have for you today, and I, I hope this one goes down deep into your heart the church is a is, excuse me the church is corporate in nature not individualistic. The church is corporate in nature, not individualistic. This is actually a far greater issue for us in the age in which we live than it was for the church in earlier periods of Christian church history. Dating back to the very first centuries of the early church father era, this was not an issue. Uh, The church had no concept of itself outside of the locally gathered bodies of believers. And then as the church progressed into what was known as medieval Christianity, a period that stretched for about a 1,000 years after the church father era from about 500 to 1500 AD, roughly. This was when the Roman Catholic Church was the dominant expression of Christian faith and practice, and then the Eastern Orthodox splitting off from them about halfway into that medieval period. Same thing. This was not an issue for them. There was no concept of the church besides that of the gathered body of believers. Now, there were those who had problems with what had grown to become a very institutionalized and too powerful church that had some corruption, but as they separated to try to follow their conscience, they would still separate into gathered bodies. Then, of course, we have the Reformation beginning around the 1500s. Same thing. This concept was not an issue for them. They, they had no understanding of themselves outside of gathering together in the truth as the body of believers, as a community of faith. This was their understanding of who they were. It was not an issue for them to be their own Lone Ranger Christian self and plow their own field toward eternal life with the Father. However, this is an issue now. God has been so clear in his word that his intention for his people, his body, his bride, it's a corporate intention. It's an intention of community, of togetherness, of gatheredness. It's always been that way. The church is communal by its very nature. It was through their identity as gathered members that these earlier churches and Christians understood their part as individuals in a greater whole, a greater picture of what God was doing in the earth. They were part of something much bigger than themselves. It was through that lens that they made sense of life and of worship. However, You've often heard us speak here of the crises we find ourselves in post-enlightenment. That means after this modern age, uh, several hundred years ago, starting in Europe, moving into the Americas, we had this period of supposed enlightenment where supposedly our minds were opened and we understood things that were so important that we didn't understand before. And really, instead of being enlightened, what that period of time was, was a darkening of the human understanding, a reversion back into a spiritual dark age where God was displaced and humanism rose up and man became the center of the universe and man became the one who was what it was all about. And the meaning of life was focused on the individual. And so now this this obsession with individualism and, and expression of the true authentic self has gripped our culture and sadly has begun to seep in even into the church and to cause great struggle here in a holy place. This has been an issue now at the university level in what young students are taught regarding worldview, all the way down to the very basic level of the average man, the average woman living on the average street in an average town. Individualism, humanism, the belief that man, not God, is the center of it all. And so what we see is that society is now programmed, more or less. Children are now Programmed more or less not to think as they grow and as they wonder and as they seek to make sense of life. They're programmed not to think about what is objectively right, meaning what's right outside of myself, just in reality, what's real, what's true. They're not taught that. Now they're taught and they're fashioned by culture to think what's right for me, what's true to me, this is what is important to me. Now instead of being taught to ask the deep questions like, what is ultimately true? What is truth? Those questions were asked in generations much older than ours to their benefit. And now to our shame, we're asking questions like, what is my truth? I should live my truth. Find out what's right, with, what's right for me. Run with that. And so now we're shaped by the culture around us to think not in terms of what's good for the whole, We're not raised up to think, what's good for my community? What's good for my whole church? What's good for this nation? We're taught to think, what makes me happy? What gives meaning to my life? How can I freely express myself to find ultimate purpose? And again, I I say that this is an issue not just in the culture, but has begun to seep into the church. Entire books have been written now by self-proclaimed ministry professionals, books placed into the hands of naive Young Bible school students, college freshmen, and they're taught, church is about individuals. It's about the people. Find out what the consumers want. Give them what they want. Your job is to figure out why people are leaving the church and then to do something different that is more about what they want. Like church is this kind of buffet, and if people don't like what you're you're serving up for them to put on their plate, they're gonna find somebody else that's gonna serve up what they want to eat. And so you're doing yourself a favor to figure out what they want to eat and then cook that for them, spiritually speaking. And you might think that's speculation or over-exaggeration. And how, how could you possibly know that? Because I sat in those classes. It was very discouraging to me just out of high school. And I went to, to school, to Bible school. And there was a professor who was over the pastoral ministry program who I'd had the chance to meet when I was a senior in high school. And the guy just gripped my heart. And everything I could ever have thought or hoped or wanted to be in ministry, I saw embodied in him his passion for the gospel, his heart for people, his, his careful approach to rightly dividing the scriptures. And then I showed up and he announced his retirement, much to my discouragement. And then the school made the, the horrible decision to bring this uh, flashy, trendy fella in from California who totally revamped the program. And, and instead of putting these tools into our hands, put all these books into our hands. I remember a speaker coming in that he, that he was so proud of one day and wrote all these words on the screen or on the, the whiteboard And he said, these are the words you need to stop using in the church, in your sermons. Words like sanctification, justification, propitiation, salvation. These turn people away. They don't get it. And this is a guy that that drew crowds to himself because he used to be a UFC fighter and and they would drive his motorcycle up on stage on Father's Day. And and this is how you do ministry. This is how you do church. This is how you gather a group of people together to give them what they're after. And so, yes, I know these things to be true. I've experienced them, and it wasn't my experience only. This is a crisis across our nation. To put the focus of ministry and church on that of the individual and their expressed wants and their felt needs and desires. And we have to see that God's approach in his word is radically different from this. And I would say refreshingly different from this. His divine intention for his people, his body, is that they be a community gathered together for the purposes of something far greater than themselves and their own desires and wants. His desire and his intention for his people is that they be corporate, not individualistic. They are a gathered assembly. They are one. And it is these lines we're to think along as we process what it means to be the church, what is true, what matters most in this discussion. We are to live with the whole in mind, not just this body in this place, on this street, in this town, but across the world and throughout history. What is God's understanding himself of his own people, and what has he communicated to us? I love how clear many of the leading voices in our culture are who are faithful to the scriptures. Professor Wayne Grudem, Grudem, one of the foremost theologians of our day, he wrote this, the church is the community of all true believers for all time. Another famous pastor, scholar, author, Stanley Grintz, treated this subject in a much more concise version than Professor Grudem. That's uh, a daunting size of a textbook. Um, but Stanley Grintz, he titled his book along these lines, Created for Community. Another of the most gifted theological minds of our day, Dr. John Frame, wrote this, Christ shed his blood not just for individuals, which he did. He died for each one of us personally. Not just for individuals, Christ shed his blood for a body of people, the church. The church is all of God's elect gathered together in a visible organization. Now it's okay to say salvation is something that happens to individuals one at a time. God reaches the person That's true, but that's not all that's true. It doesn't stop there. God doesn't save us just unto our own experience. Rather, individuals are saved unto something greater, into something greater, much greater, namely the church, the body, the bride, God's holy, eternal, chosen people. But our Western independence, our obsession with independence and self-expression, it is, it's muddied these waters. It's made it hard to appreciate and grasp what God is trying to say to us in his word about his own body. And what we found is that now in modern times, we're not always interested in traveling alongside an entire community down the narrow path that leads to life. Ah! And... Not so comfortable bumping shoulders all the time with all these other people and all these other opinions and all these other personalities. You know, I I think I'm just gonna cut my own trail to paradise. I just me and Jesus, we have our own thing going, and he's cool with that. I'm cool with that. He gets me. We're good. He and I have our own thing going. You know, I'm I'm much more interested, honestly, in owning my own private highway to heaven. Thank you very much. I'm more comfortable there in my space. Organized religion, lots of people, just not really my thing. But friends, God has revealed clearly that his will for his people is gathered fellowship in a body, a gathered community. And that that doesn't have to be a group this size. It might be 10 people in a living room, but it's a gathered fellowship. His children, one with another, sharing each other's burdens celebrating each other's victories, catching one another's tears in hands and hearts that are clasped together in prayer for one another. It's his will for his body. And so the next idea on the screen here for you is this. We cannot say we love our God and at the same time not love his church. We cannot do this. It's to be out of step and out of sync with him in that case. We'll never have that deep part of the well of our heart and soul filled up without understanding this principle. We cannot say we love our God and at the same time not love his church. John thirteen thirty four. a new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, to his people, his followers, his disciples, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This is God's way for his people. It's his, the path he's given us to walk down. We cannot say we love him and at the same time not love his church. And yet, this becomes a real challenge in real time. In a practical way, this becomes a great challenge. Why? Because as his bride, we often make ourselves unlovely. We become hard to love. We become hard to be around. In the unloveliness of our sinfulness, the blemishes we put upon ourselves as he's clothed us in these beautiful white garments of righteousness, and we continue to soil and sully and muddy those, we are blemished. We do sin against each other, sometimes in very petty ways that are ultimately insignificant, sometimes in very grievous ways that cut very deeply. This This is what makes it so hard to honor and obey Christ's command, to be his body together and to love one another radically is because so often we make ourselves unlovely and hard to love. And so you can kind of begin to justify and understand in your mind why people would separate themselves and walk away from the bride, the body of gathered believers because of the hurt, because of the sinfulness, because of the grievances, because of the offenses. We begin to formulate these reasons why it's understandable. it's, It's even justifiable. And yet, I hope this next point even though it's a bit wordy, it's my way. I'm sorry. I hope I hope you get this down deep. The next one on the screen here, the only one who is positionally justified to separate himself from the church happens to be the very one who is most firmly declared that he never ever will. What a marvel. The one God is the only one who is actually positioned, justifiably positioned to say I'm done. I'm walking away. We're separated, never to be reunited. I'm leaving you because of your sinfulness and your unfaithfulness and your rebellion. He's the only one that has the moral justification to do that as a sinless holy God. And yet, he also at the same time happens to be the one who has most firmly declared that this is the one thing he will never, ever do. What a wonder. what love the Father has lavished on us. Song of Solomon 6.3 says this, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And that's never going to change. In all the filth, all the unfaithfulness, all the moments of failure individually, corporately, God has said at the end of the day, you're still mine. I will wash you with water. I will make you clean with my own blood. Jeremiah 32, verse 40, God says to his people, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I would encourage you, open your heart to whatever degree is possible this morning. Let that word everlasting wash over you and give you joy. Because there's a lot of encouragement and joy that's to be found in that one single word in that verse. God has said this to you and to me, to his people I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. (laughs) Friends, that is amazing. For God to say that to a people that couldn't deserve it less, myself included, I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me. And you know, this isn't a trembling-in-my-boots fear, like the moment I I step the wrong direction, God's going to sideswipe me with a lightning bolt. Now, this is a fear of him that is a reverent worship. It's honoring him as the creator of life, the one that can take it from me that fast. He could stop my lungs from breathing and my heart from beating in this very moment if he so chose. And it's this awareness, this living before him reverently, worshipfully, knowing that he is God and he's called us to be his people. He's going to inspire that in us, it says. Why? So that they will never turn away from me. And though I've referenced this verse twice now in this series, I mention it again here in hopes that we'll have it memorized soon. Hosea 2.19, I will betroth you, he says to his people, to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I hope you see we cannot take these glorious, these glorious truths of the covenant love of God and unhitch them from the eternal community of God's people, his church, his body, his bride. We can't disconnect those two. They're together. This is the true church. As surely as we belong to the Lord, brothers and sisters, we belong to one another. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In spiritual sickness and in spiritual health, we belong together. And that doesn't mean, it's. this isn't a guilt trip if you've come from another body. This isn't a guilt trip if one day you choose to fellowship in another local gathered body. I'm referring to the body across the whole earth that we all need to be a part of. And so with this in mind, with all God's people everywhere in mind, even to the very end of the age, think how incredible that Jesus, on the last night he had on this earth, with all that was on his heart and soul, all that was on his mind, he decided to pray first to the Father about himself and also to his 12. But then what did he do? He prayed for us. He had us in mind that night nearly 2,000 years ago as he's headed to the cross, like literally you, me, not an exaggeration. And he prayed these words, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, this is God's plan to to reach the lost, to reach the world. It's when they see his people living in a way that they can't replicate. They can't understand. They can't grasp. Sinful, broken people, nonetheless committed to one another in perpetual covenant relationship, for better or for worse. This speaks a message to the world about the truthfulness of who he is and what he does. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. You see, we are called to be the light out there in the spiritual darkness. And how can we do that if our lights aren't joining together to create a blazing light that lights up the spiritual night around us? The illumination of the church together in a world otherwise filled with spiritual filth and darkness. This is the way that God chooses to reach those whom he's drawing. This is why our Christmas Eve candlelight service is such a treasured part of our worship calendar and I'm always a little sad because we miss it every other year. Uh, we, we alternate whether we're here on Christmas Eve and Christmas or with my wife's family in Washington State, and my heart is always with you when you're having that service on those years that I'm not here. This, it's possibly my favorite moment each year that we have in this body because we, at the end of the service, we start in total darkness with just this one light, this one tiny candle, and then we begin to, to spread the light out, and pretty soon the whole room is transformed, and it's this beautiful, life-giving glow that you can see every face, and it's not a light like the sun, and it's not a light like God himself is light, but it's, it's a powerful expression of what God has given us as a task, as his body. How different this is. Instead of individuals in modern society professing believers who have decided that it's okay to be a bunch of disconnected, spiritual lone rangers who ride off into the sunset of just me and my Jesus. Many claim to love and follow their Savior, Christ the Lord, and yet it seems that they're more at home, more comfortable in the world, in the culture, than with a gathered body of believers. In fact, we've seen many voices now in our culture that still claim the name of Christ, and what you find is they keep apologizing, tripping over themselves, apologizing to the culture for the church trying to say, that, that's not really the church. I'm out here with you. I'm a home among you. You're the ones who are really my company, my people, and we're so sorry about what the church actually is and how they, how they appear to be. Now, of course, we can't lump into that, all this, the sin that's happened in the church. I'm not referring to that. I mean, the church, when it's being who it's supposed to be, it still causes shame in some who profess his name. Just to give you an example, and there are a thousand. It's not hard to find them, uh, one popular blogger one author titled one of his blogs recently with these words, I like Jesus, it's his followers I can't stand. Friends, that's a common sentiment these days. That's a growing sentiment. One of the, the Christian music artists I most looked up to as a teenager growing up in youth group in the Christian church, later on just began to, to veer further and further away from the church and from the faith until I, he's, he's publicly making these statements that say, oh, I love Jesus, but his followers freak me out. those who study culture, those who, whose profession it is is to administer surveys to the culture and bring in thousands and thousands of responses of people who, who participate in these surveys, what they're finding, what they're publishing, is that there's this mass exodus of 20 and 30 somethings, those who are known as Gen Zers and millennials and religious nuns, not nuns as in like a convent, but N-O-N-E, like no religious preference, like I'm just out in the world doing my thing, but I still love Jesus. There's this mass exodus of them from the traditional historical church. And they give reasons for their departure. Many of them indicate that they have become what's known as anti-institutional, that any kind of organized body of people, that's an institution, and institutions have power, and power by its very nature is evil. And so down with the institutions, scatter, just go be the church by doing good things on the streets and love other people. One of the main indicators is that the church is full of hypocrisy. Those in the church are all hypocrites. Another reason is the church's unwillingness to get with the times, change some of their beliefs, be done with those archaic, barbaric, bigoted views of earlier eras of church history, mainly relating to human sexuality. And so this growing multitude, seemingly disgusted with the bride of Christ, they walk away from this this body they've inherited from their fathers and mothers in the faith. They take this beautiful holy concept, that of the true church, and then what they do is they try to actually steal that concept from God for themselves and to make it into something that God says it's not. They attempt to refashion an idea called church after their own desires and according to their own subjective values. And what's very interesting is all these disconnected individuals now out in the culture, they, they've kind of developed their own system of, of values and virtues. Because in any given body, whether a church or some other organization in town, they all have their, their virtues or their values, like the reasons they exist and what makes them them. And you could say very, very similarly for the church, you read through the New Testament, and there, there's a particular type of virtue God calls his people to embody and to live out So those that are departing the church, they've developed their own system of values, this new value and virtue system. And what we see is that now doubt and skepticism are like one of the ultimate virtues. Like you're to be commended and applauded. I'm not saying it's wrong if you've had doubts or struggles in your faith. That's normal. It's that it's being turned into something praiseworthy, as though that's what should define you as you come to the table, is your doubt? And your doubt is justified, and and yeah, God has really been really honry to us and not given us more of what we want to be sure about things when in reality he has. So their doubt becomes a virtue. Their gospel becomes not the traditional gospel, but a new gospel that's called social activism. They look at the claim that there is absolute truth and that it's absolutely knowable, and they say that's offensive and that's culturally insensitive. And their worship becomes hopelessly centered on humans, individuals, not on God. And then they even take the concept of one true holy church and they say, hey, make this whatever you want it to be. And God in his providence, I'm, I'm grateful when he does things like this, but as, as I'm preparing this message this week, just two days ago, I was in a drive through and lo and behold, the car right in front of me, there was this bumper sticker. You can see on the screen here. Nature is my church. Nature is my church. Friends, that's like saying, purple is my green, or strawberries are my cheeseburgers. Like, those statements become nonsensical when we can't agree on what words mean and what they've always meant for thousands of years. And we say, I can take a beautiful, holy, meaningful word, and I can change it to mean something totally new that it's never meant, and and I'll steal that word. I'll steal that concept for myself and the message I want to communicate it's what you could call concept plagiarism. You take a concept, an idea, that's meant something very specific to multitudes of people for thousands of years. And that's not even, I'm not even talking just in a church context, or in a religious context. Because 2,000 years ago in Roman, Greco-Roman society, even non-Christian people used the word that was used for church. And it still meant something to them that was very similar to what the church meant by the word. So if you want to take a word and reject its meaning and replace it with new meaning, you can do that. For instance, if you want to take your faith and put it in a theory of origins that that credits cosmic nothingness and randomness for producing a beautiful world of infinite complexity, if you want to say that nature is all that exists and that Mother Nature is deserving of your worship, you're free to do that if you want. You're free to believe that and to teach that, but to refer to your time of solitude in nature as a personalized form of church is very misleading, and it's not helpful to any discussion because that word church, what it means is not my personal worship experience. What it means literally is a gathered assembly. That's what the word church means. Now, to be clear, can we worship out in nature? Absolutely. And I hope you do. He is the God of wonders, and it is delightful to worship him when surrounded by the beauty of the outdoors and of of his creation. But the true church is something much different. The church simply cannot be this matrix of independent, disconnected individuals who do things their own way. The church literally is God's gathered together people. It's what the word literally means. They've been brought together not to have their individual demands met, me, the private consumer, nor to voice their opinion on every issue and how things should be, nor to customize their own little private worship experience. The church is God's gathered people brought together to worship him in unity and in truth. That's why the church is brought together. The church gathers to worship their God, their Savior, to hear his word, to learn it, to live it. It's this assembly who gather to celebrate through baptism. Baptism is one of the key things that makes the church what it is. It's a celebration of God's covenant love that he has so graciously called us into. That's what baptism is and does for the church. It's this powerful symbol of our faith that this truth that our sins have been forgiven and washed away and we are delighted to be identified as part of his body. The church gathers physically, it assembles to celebrate communion together. It's part of what makes the church the church, affirming the new covenant into which he's called us, rejoicing in his promise that he will one day return for his people and he will in fact share a meal with them at a table once again one day. The church gathers to prove their salvation by grace by living out the gospel toward one another. The church gathers literally so we can show grace to one another and forgive each other as Christ has forgiven us. It's part of what makes the church the church. I hope you can see the irony then. When multitudes, especially of of a certain demographic of younger people, when multitudes leave the church with the excuse on their tongue that it is because of hypocrisy. Think about this. Now, to be sure, there is much hypocrisy in the church. And there are times, I would say, you should leave one gathered assembly of people for another when there's spiritual sickness that will not be dealt with, and there's unrepented sin, and there's things being tolerated that can't be tolerated. It's good to, to relocate to another gathered assembly. Okay, please know, I, I realize the depth of hypocrisy that's been in the church. I realize my own. But there is a profound difference between leaving just a specific gathered assembly that meets on such and such street at such and such time under this particular church name, to go to another one where where there aren't those issues. There's a profound difference between that and leaving the church in general as a whole, like I'm done with the church. Instead of this particular gathered body is tolerating and not repenting of these certain glaring issues, oftentimes it's abuse that's happening in the church. I'm going to go to a place where there's some spiritual health and I can be fed and be plugged into it. There's a great difference between that and saying the church in general, the church as a whole, I'm walking away from. I'm done with. So it's ironic when they leave with the accusation of hypocrisy on their tongues, what are they implying as they go out the door? I am not hypocritical. I am not sinful. I am not like all the other Christians gathered everywhere in the world. I am unique. I am alone. I am elevated. And I'm going to be a church unto myself where other sinners are not. But for the one true church, what is one of the primary things that is to define our being together and our conduct toward one another? What did God tell us in His Word? Ephesians 4:32. This is a mark of the church. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Do you think for one moment that the mountain of my sin or yours that Christ washed away is smaller than the mountains of sin we have one against another? No, there's a parable about that. There's a parable. Colossians three twelve through 14, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved... Clothe yourselves. Literally put on like a garment when you walk in these doors. An attitude of kindness and forgiveness and compassion toward one another. Humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And so another idea here for you on the next slide our ability to love one another through and in spite of our sinfulness is a proof that we belong to God. And to be sure, God wants us to make our calling and our election sure in how we live, especially toward one another in a gathered body. Our ability to love one another through and in spite of our sinfulness is a proof that we belong to God. And yet, you don't have to search far on the internet these days. Article after article, blog after blog, chronicles the stories of those who have left the church, and they testify it was like a new salvation experience. It was so liberating. It's like the chains fell off my soul. And I've discovered that I can love Jesus on my own. I can read the Bible for myself. I can live my truth and no one else's. Friends, let me be crystal clear. I am grieved and saddened, like many of you, at the hypocrisy that is in the church my own included, at the, at the great amount of sinfulness. I'm grieved at how many churches across our nation have been self-righteous and have been wrongly judgmental and have been condescending and have been more or less just big jerks to people that walk through the doors and have been spiritually abusive, some, and sometimes other ways abusive. And I can't blame people at times for not remaining in spiritually destitute places like that. But also, I'm grieved that the conclusion so often reached in the hearts and minds of those wounded is, I'm not just leaving such and such a a gathered body. I'm leaving the body. I'm leaving the bride. In general, I can be a church unto myself. Friends, Jesus paid too high a price for us to think we can disconnect ourselves from his body and expect it to produce life in and through us. It only comes at our own detriment, our own, our own spiritual peril. It, we're inviting God's discipline into our life in that way. So with all that being said, I want to look here as we begin to wrap things up. I don't want to give you false hope. We've got just a few minutes left. but We're beginning the process. This primary text for this morning is one verse from the the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves. We're being taught. This is being spoken to the leaders of the church. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock. We're going to dig a little bit into that word here in a moment. The flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church. We're going to dig into that word in a moment. Of God. Of God. And then look at this, which he bought with his own blood. Now, did he purchase salvation for individual people? Yes, he did. But it's very clear that scripturally in God's mind, his understanding of the church is he bought a body, a community, a gathered people, the eternal company who will be with him forever. Those are who he shed his blood for and bought them together as one with his own blood. I don't often dig into original Greek words and, and the, the range of meanings that they can have, but this is one of those times that I think it's very helpful to do so. That word flock in the Greek, isn't that awesome that we have the original <laughs> New Testament available to study in its own language in which it was first written? That's just incredible. The word for flock, poimnion, poimnion, literally means a flock of sheep. That's what God called his, his church, and yet it's not literally a flock of sheep. We know that. This is a gathered people in a deeper spiritual symbolic way. What, what happens with a sheep that thinks it can just wander outside the pasture? You know what? I don't like the other sheep anymore. I don't like how they smell. I don't like the, the texture of their wool. I don't like how they some of them bite. I don't like how some of them bah at me. And bad pastor jokes, I know. And so they wander off. I'm going to be my own sheep pen. I'm going to be my own flock out in the woods by myself. How does that go for a sheep in the real world? They're done. They're totally disconnected from that which will protect them, nourish them, give them life. And that's the word God chose to describe his people, (laughs) a flock of sheep. Another range of the meaning, though, is a group of Christ's disciples, bodies of Christians, that is churches shepherded by elders. And then now, finally, in week four of our series, it took us a while to get there, but we arrive at the single most important word as it relates to the Bible's teaching on the church, and it's the Greek word for the church. Some of you have heard this word, I'm sure, because you've grown up learning these things and studying the Bible, and it's ecclesia. The word for study of the church, theology of the church, is ecclesiology. The the root word there is ecclesia in the Greek, and it literally means church. What you need to see is that this was, a church, this was a word that wasn't used just by Christians. It was used by secular society as well. And here's what it meant to them in Greco-Roman culture. A gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place, an assembly. That's how an, a non-Christian person in the first century would have used that word. An assembly of the people convened at the public place of the council for the purpose of deliberating. Now, as God used this word and inspired it to be written in his word, it took on a new range of deeper, more spiritual meanings. And here is the range of meaning for this word in the New Testament. An assembly of Christians gathered for worship in a religious meeting. Or in the Old Testament, it would be the word for the assembling of the Israelites out together, leaving their tents, leaving their homes. Or those who anywhere in a city, village, or elsewhere constitute such a company and are united into one body. Or another meaning the whole body of Christians scattered throughout the earth. And finally, the assembly of faithful Christians already dead and received into heaven. Now, I want you to ask yourself, or I'll ask you rather, what, what's the commonality in all these possible meanings of this word? Or maybe a better place to start, a better question is, what is noticeably absent in all these possible meanings of the word? Any notion whatsoever of individualism or privacy Totally absent from God's intention and meaning for this word. It is absolutely a coming out and being together in a actual place. Now, of course, there are some who literally aren't able to do that. That's why we're glad to have the live stream ministry and and other things. It's not always possible, and I'm I'm confident those people are are still a part of the body. But the literal meaning of the word is is this very thing that we actually go to a place and gather physically assemble to be his people in very specific ways. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about our personal preferences. It's about him. It's about Christ. It's about the gospel. It's about his people gathering, assembling to worship him and learn how to follow him better. This is the vehicle God has chosen to bring the gospel into the world. And to our shame, may God God forgive us for the times we don't do that well, but for better or for worse, it's still his plan. He hasn't made a plan B as it relates to his chosen means of bringing the gospel to the world. So you see this verse again, Acts 20, 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Peter understood very well this concept. And you can appreciate now better, I hope, his choice of words, as he addressed the church, the gathered ones. Here's how he addressed them. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may, here's why we gather, here's why we're assembled, here's why we're here, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, the gospel. That's what he does, and this is how he chooses to do it. The church is a people in covenant with their God forever through Christ Jesus. And so one final point here on the screen for you. The church is the gathered assembly of God's people, one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's what the church is. It's our nature. It's our identity. The church is the gathered assembly of God's people, one body, one Lord, one faith, One baptism. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's heart and his intention for his people. I want to invite you again tonight to the community service. I know it's a busy day, and if you can't make it, that's fine, but it's interesting that this is happening here now in the midst of this series we're in because what a, what a poignant way to apply these truths that we're gonna gather with five, six, I don't know how many other churches tonight to show that the church far exceeds the physical walls of any one gathered assembly. And there'll be a pastor of a church who's not me who will be preaching the message tonight and a pastor of a church, not ours, who will be leading us in worship tonight. It's a pretty neat expression of we're very different in some ways and we'll get pretty heated in our debates at times on particular issues, but we're united on the things that matter most. And it's, a, it's an important expression, I think, of the truthfulness of these things. So I wanted to just personally extend that invitation again to you tonight at six here this evening. Father, we pause now just to give you thanks for your word and the power and the clarity with which you speak to us through it. God, I pray that you'd help us. Um, I pray that you would lead us graciously into your pastures. I pray that you'd forgive us for our sinfulness our individualism, when we so often, if we're being honest, we'd much rather walk out the pasture gate, be on our own, be away from other people who rub us the wrong way, who bother us, whose personalities don't seem to mesh with ours. Lord, forgive us for how ungracious we can be. Forgive us for how unkind. Forgive us for how judgmental. I pray, Lord, that you give us a much greater vision this morning, your vision for your people, your body, your bride, which you purchased at the cost of your own blood. Not to propel us onto platforms where we can boast of our individualism and can express ourselves most authentically, but rather, Father, that you can draw us together humbly as your people to overlook things that are lesser things, to forgive sin, and to glorify you, our God. And Lord, I just pray a special prayer over those listening online. Um, I don't know if this message has been difficult for some of them. I, I know that some literally aren't able to come, but there, there might be others, Father, that um, they're not walking in obedience to you, and you are calling their name to step out of their comfort zone, step out of the comfortable life of their own living room, and to actually step into the beauty of what you're calling us to, is to physically gather as your people. Uh, we're missing out, Lord. We're cutting ourselves off from the vine if we if we do that, and it, it will affect our, our nourishment, and to share a table with one another, and to celebrate each other's joys, and to grieve each other's wounds. Lord, it's a precious thing, and so I pray you'd give them direction and courage, and and uh, your spirit to guide them in decisions maybe that you're calling them to make. Um, But for those who truly need uh, the gospel carried to them in this way, we thank you for the technology. We thank you for the opportunity. Um, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Thank you for forgiving us in all the times and ways we've needed it. We love you, and we pray it in your name. Amen.